trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, here we go, off and running. Hey, it's good to be back from Christmas. Yes, it was a wonderful holiday. I know it was kind of a tough one for some folks, and sometimes I forget this, uh, but there was a time where I really struggled with Christmas. And for me, it, it stemmed primarily from losing my dad around Christmas time, and I just kind of carried that bitterness with me for a long time. And I had a real tough time. So um, I hope you had a I hope you had a pleasant Christmas for those who struggled. My heart goes out to you, but uh, but hang in there. We've got uh, got a new year just around the corner. Word on the street is it's going to be even more exciting than this year. <laughs> I don't know if that's good news or if it's bad news. But I will tell you this. We've got some fun stuff to talk about today. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is uh, we're going to talk about what's scarier than a goose-stepping tyrant. And the answer is it's a moral monster who destroys another person's life through that totalitarian virtue of cancel culture. i got a story here that will just blow your mind. And, and it's not, by the way, an invitation for us to engage in this kind of scorched earth mentality so much as a warning of don't be that person. Don't be the person who lives in a duplex and only shovels half the front steps because, well, it's not my problem. Don't be that guy. We'll talk about that. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the moral case for capitalism. Um, everything you need to know about government in one story. This was a really fun one, and it's from Dan Mitchell and has to do with the... Uh, uh, the, the marijuana industry in those states that have actually legalized it in one form or another. We'll also talk a little bit about the $2.3 trillion spending bill passed by Congress, and I understand vetoed by the president. It kind of went back and forth. I don't know where it stands now. They're trying a veto override. But this much you can know. Whatever the status of that bill, there's a lot of nonsense in there. $2.3 trillion, $900 billion of it for COVID relief. And Fiona Harrigan and Peter C. Earl have a very accurate, if not infuriating, accounting of how that money is being doled out. And last but not least, just to keep things interesting and perhaps a little on the edge, we're going to talk about uh, something that I hear from I hear from my listeners and my friends on just about a daily basis, how they feel like they are trapped on the horns of a dilemma. And, and the dilemma is this. We either roll over and we accept the blatant corruption and tyranny of the systems that seek to rule us, whether it's, you know, a global reset, whether it's, you know, right down to your hometown, you know, code enforcement, or we can engage in a bloody, bloody revolution. That's the choice that a lot of people are feeling right now. Well, what if there was another peaceful alternative? Brandon Smith has got uh, he's got some pretty interesting ideas here and something that I think is probably on the right path. All right. Phone was ringing as I started. Let's start with a phone call 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Going once. Going twice. It was probably a telemarketer. All that build up and it was probably a telemarketer. All right. Well then, let's talk about the moral monster who destroys another person's life. Through cancel culture. 
You, you may have heard a little bit about this story. I, I don't want to just whip up emotions and get people angry, but I have to wonder how a young man like Jimmy Galligan can be held up as a hero by the New York Times, but he is. Apparently, he went to high school in Leesburg, Virginia. Four years ago, a girl in his class by the name of Mimi Groves used a racial slur in a Snapchat video lasting three seconds. To be specific, she dropped the N-word. And she was talking about, I can drive, N-words. And then she sent it privately to a friend. Well, someone showed Jimmy Galligan that clip. He saved the clip and then waited for his chance. And the chance he was waiting for was for this for Ms. Groves to get into a college so that he could bring that clip forward and destroy her with it. Because see, by then, this was four years ago. Now she was a varsity cheer captain who dreamed of attending the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Her cheer team was the reigning national champion. When she made the team back in May, her parents celebrated with a cake and orange balloons, the university's official color. But as protests were sweeping the nation after the police killing of George Floyd, Ms. Groves, in a public Instagram post, urged people to protest, donate, sign a petition, rally, do something in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, you would think that Mr. Jimmy Galligan would would rejoice in seeing that his uh, classmate, who was a freshman had used a ra- that had used a racial slur, had actually matured and become more sensitive. Nope. As Rod Dreher reports, uh, instead, she received this message from someone on, uh, on, on uh, Instagram. You have the audacity to post this after saying the N-word? This was someone Ms. Groves didn't even know. And then her friends began calling her and directing her to a source of brewing social media furor because Mr. Galligan, who'd waited till Miss Groves had chosen a college, had publicly posted the video that afternoon. And without, within hours, it went viral, shared to Snapchat, TikTok and Twitter, and furious calls mounted for the University of Tennessee to revoke its admission offer. Now, the university forced Mimi Groves' parents to withdraw her. She now lives at home with them and attends a community college. Ms. Groves' parents, who said their daughter was being targeted by a social media mob for a mistake made as an adolescent, urged university officials to assess her character by speaking with her high school and cheer coaches. Instead, those admissions officials gave her an ultimatum, withdraw, or the university would rescind her, rescind rather, her offer of admission. We just needed it to stop, said Mrs. Groves, so we withdrew her adding that the entire experience had vaporized, vaporized rather, 12 years of her daughter's hard work. They rushed to judgment, and unfortunately it's going to affect her the rest of his life, the rest of her life. Now, Jimmy Galligan, the young man who thoughtfully sat on this video and then brought it forward at exactly the right moment to destroy this young girl's life, he says he has no regrets. He says, if I never posted that video, nothing would have happened, because the Internet never forgets the clip will always be available to watch. He says with satisfaction, I'm going to remind myself, you started something, you taught someone a lesson. You know, Jimmy, I'm just going to suggest if karma is a thing, it's going to be taking a mighty big bite out of your rear end at some point. That is what a moral monster looks like. Now, look, in no way am I defending her use of the N-word. 
But if we want to pretend with, oh, well, no one, no one in the sound of my voice has ever said that word or even thought of saying that word. Baloney. Every one of us has said it. Maybe we've said it as the punchline to a joke or repeating a line from a movie or whatever it may be. Maybe somebody said it in anger. I don't know. We've all said it. If you were going to look back at the things that you did and said as an adolescent. I mean, at what point are, are, are you able to let that go? And maybe I'll, I'll ask th- it this way. At what point are you willing to let it go for somebody else? I guarantee you most of the stuff I was doing at age 14 and 15. She was 14, by the way, when she made this three second long TikTok video or this uh, yeah, this this stupid, you know, Snapchat video. I don't think any of us could withstand that kind of scrutiny. And so I, I'm asking in all sincerity, is it proportional to see her plans for the future destroyed? I mean, look, if it had something to do with it, well, in her official capacity as, you know, the head cheerleader for this university and, you know, and, and if she had, had built her uh, her whole effort to, to make that cheerleading squad on some kind of deception, then I think it would be right for her to lose that. But for Mr. Jimmy Galligan to sit there on the video and wait for the right time to bring it up so that he could destroy her life. It's like Rod Dreher says, mercy is a crime in this world we've created. Now, the New York Times focuses really heavily on the fact that, well, she used anti-black racist language. And there was lots of that being used at that high school. Oh, I bet there is. And I'll bet you a good portion of it came from the lips of black students themselves. But these are high school kids. They will grow out of it eventually. Unless, I guess, if you leave people no incentive, if like, we're going to treat you like a criminal no matter what, what incentive do you have to reform yourself, to grow, to mature? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit uh, like maybe, maybe we all need to either sit down and watch the best version you can find of Les Miserables, or if you're feeling ambitious, pick up a copy of the book. And read all 1,300 pages. Jean Valjean was not given a chance until somebody gave him a chance that he really didn't deserve. And when the bishop gave him that chance, he did not squander it. Every one of us needs redemption. Everyone. I think my respect goes far more to the people who can actually give redemption and give forgiveness to others than the ones that hold a grudge. But that's just me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. By the way, I want to mention that our show is brought to you in part today by Alta Bank. That would be my friend John Staples. And I'm telling you, you've got some time, but you got to get on this. Low-cost refinance with free appraisals in December. This is particularly for my listeners who are within the state of Utah. Get a hold of John. You can go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. At the bottom of the page, you'll find links to my sponsors, ways to contact them. And if you are looking to refinance, if you're looking for a new home loan, this is the time to do it. 
Contact John at Alta Bank. Again, the uh, contact info is in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I want to encourage you, check out those show notes. I will have a link in there to the article I just shared with you from Rod Dreher about uh, the moral monster, Jimmy Galligan, who did not have the courage to step up when a classmate used a racial slur, at least in the moment. He he just sat on the video and just, you know, hung on to it for a more opportune time when he could signal virtue and bully her in the way that only a cancel culture mob can bully and destroy her life for something she said four years earlier in a three-second-long Snapchat video. Now, look, I believe in accountability, and I believe that, uh, you know, if someone does something that seriously causes harm, yeah, they ought to be held to account for it. They ought to be able to, to have the opportunity to make restitution. I fail to see where anything that she has done you know, is is on the 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 measure of uh, the kind of punishment that she was. I don't. It doesn't equate for me. It's very disproportionate. And there are people, as you'll see in the in the some of the post notes to the article. There's a there's a I think she's a doctor, Jamie Ann Ernest. Look, I don't like virtue signaling, punitive approaches to human frailty or cancel culture. I prefer calling in than calling out. But if you're going to be this flippant, entitled, or stupid in the age of civilian surveillance, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Well, behind that larger uh, perspective is a person who just can't be bothered by the idea that uh, maybe this is abusive. She's basically saying cancel culture is something she's accepted. That's the price of living in America. As Rod Dreher says, it's like paying taxes or something. None of us like paying taxes, but you better pay them or you're going to go to jail. Yeah, that's the irony. There are very few people out there in practice or principle who actually like cancel culture. In fact, if this doctor, Jamie Ann Ernest, were canceled, she'd likely be screaming bloody murder. But cancel culture prevails not because of the extremists, but because of people like her who don't see it as a problem or because they in their heart of hearts see it as some fair and square consequence of your actions. I'm not sure exactly how you push back against cancel culture. I don't know if it's the kind of thing you fight fire with fire and cancel the cancelers. I'm thinking that may not be the right approach. I think that uh, the solution, which you can feel free to disagree with me on this, is just don't be the person who feels the need to cancel somebody else. Whether it's over a real slight or whether it's over an imagined slight, don't be the person who's looking for some way to rejoice in another person being destroyed or limited, damned, if you will, in their their, uh, career advancement or their schooling. Just don't be that person. You know, I've, I've, I've... I've mentioned this many times before. I really believe that there is something to be said for forgiveness. And I believe the strongest people are the ones who find that strength to forgive and the courage to forgive other people, even if they have been legitimately harmed. And I say that because, um, boy, there are times I've done things in my life that were so stupid. I really needed forgiveness. I needed someone to cut me some slack. And they did. And invariably, this brings out, you know, people, well, Brian, it sounds like you have a guilty conscience. (laughs) And I think, yeah, well, well, we all do. 
But whatever guilty conscience I'm living with, uh, more than anything, I'm simply trying to respond to other people the way that I would want others to respond to me. And frankly, people have cut me slack at times when I did not deserve it. And I so appreciated that. It gave me encouragement that I could do better. And if it makes you feel better, you know, to be shoveling out the condemnation, you know, well, you do what works for you. But in my experience, the people who thrive for that condemnation and, and who live for that shot and frown of, of uh, smiling at other people's misfortune, they tend to be pretty unhappy people. And that's not the kind of person I'd rather be. All right, moving on. Wanted to uh, share just a quick thought here on the moral case for capitalism. Now, this is probably not something you get into around the table, but um, look, if you are a fan of the free market and you believe the free market can solve problems that we face, legitimate problems, maybe this is one of those things that you ought to have kind of squared away in your mind. And Lipton Matthews, writing for the Mises Institute, this is at Mises.org, says it's true that that free market capitalism is the best system for promoting human flourishing and prosperity. Not surprisingly, then, many advocates for free markets exalt the dynamism of capitalism. But in making this utilitarian defense of capitalism, defenders might also be ceding the moral position to socialists. And so he reminds us of the importance of the moral argument and says demonstrating the impracticality of socialism is necessary, but it's also an ineffective strategy to galvanize goodwill for capitalism because objections to capitalism are usually predicated on moral grounds. Unfortunately, even sober critics of socialism may reject capitalism on the premise that it's inhumane or it functions as a vehicle to enrich the elite. Therefore, libertarian pains to the superiority of the free market capitalism can be wrongly misinterpreted as justification for elite rule. So he says to improve the reputation of capitalism, defenders of markets need to remind naysayers that it's a moral system based on freedom and voluntary participation. Notwithstanding the remonstrations of critics, the essence of capitalism is choice, not profits. That's pretty plain and simple. And he goes into this in some detail. Is it really just about a quest for profit? But it really comes down to how free trade improves efficiency and innovation. Over time, free trade works with other market processes to shift workers and resources to more productive uses, which allows more efficient industries to thrive. And the results are higher wages, investment in things like infrastructure, a more dynamic economy that continues to create new jobs and opportunities. Free trade drives competitiveness. Free trade does require American businesses and workers to adapt to the shifting demands of the worldwide marketplace. But those adjustments are critical to remaining competitive. And competition is what fuels long-term growth. So the bottom line here, Lipton Matthews uh, says... Capitalism is more efficient than socialism. But if you want to build a compelling argument for free market capitalism, defenders of liberty must also articulate that it is a superior moral system. Why? Because it allows people to voluntarily choose where they will place their resources, where they will take their patronage. Socialism puts that decision in the hands of a very small elite who make all the decisions from the top and and tell you what you're going to like. 
He says, reminding critics that capitalism has unleashed a wave of prosperity will not disabuse them of the assertion that it is immoral. He says, to win the battle of ideas, capitalism's defenders must propound a cogent case for capitalism buttressed by moral ideals. And I think one of the greatest moral ideals that any of us can stand on is that right to choose. That right to compete. The right to go after your own path and pursue your own happiness and and to improve and to innovate. You'll find the article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please check it out. Consider subscribing to the podcast. By the way, we're, we're coming up on a milestone number. And uh, maybe I'll share a little bit more about that uh, in the next segment or two. Very excited. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a moment here and say some kind things about my sponsors, including Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, as well as Alta Bank. I appreciate both of them being sponsors for the show, and I would ask you, if you have need of what they have to offer, please do business with them. Let them know, even if you don't if you don't have the need right now, uh, call them up or send them an email and just let them know. I heard Brian talking about you. He says good things about you. And by the way, I mean those good things, but let them know you appreciate them helping uh helping to make it possible for me to do this program. As you can tell, I find great purpose every time I crack open this microphone. So we were talking about free markets as we went to break and about uh, how you can make the moral case for the free market. I want to give you kind of a, an interesting object lesson here. A great example of how government has this uncanny ability to complicate anything it touches And nowhere can you see that more clearly than in the booming cannabis industry in those states that have actually legalized marijuana in various forms. Daniel J. Mitchell, writing at his uh, blog site, talks about everything you want to know about government in a single story. Now, he says, when I write in everything you need to know column, I'm inevitably guilty of hyperbole. He says, all that I'm really doing is I'm highlighting a very compelling example of how politicians make a mess of just about everything they touch. And he says, that's true, even in the rare cases when they're trying to enact policies I prefer. The crux of the problem is that politicians like having some level of power and control over various sectors of the economy. For the simple public choice driven reason that they can then extort bribes, campaign cash and other goodies, which is good news for donors, crooks and cronies. As P.J. O'Rourke wisely noted, he said, when buying and selling are controlled by legislation, the first things to be bought and sold are legislators. But Daniel Mitchell says it's bad news for those of us who don't like sleaze. And yet sleaze is almost inevitable when politicians have power to interfere with private market transactions. In fact, he says, check out these excerpts from a political report. Quote. In the past decade, 15 states have legalized a regulated marijuana market for adults over 21. Another 17 have legalized medical marijuana. But in their rush to limit the numbers of licensed vendors and give local municipalities control of where to locate dispensaries, they created something else, a market for local corruption. 
Almost all states that legalized pot either require the approval of local officials, as in Massachusetts, or impose a statewide limit on the number of licenses chosen by a politically appointed, a politically appointed oversight board or both. Now, these practices effectively put million-dollar decisions in the hands of relatively small-time political figures, the mayors and councillors of small towns and cities, along with the friends and supporters of politicians who appoint them to boards. They've also created a culture in which would-be cannabis entrepreneurs feel obliged to make large campaign contributions or hire politically connected lobbyists. It's not just local officials. Allegations of corruption have reached the state level in numerous marijuana programs, especially ones in which a small number of commissioners are charged with dispensing limited numbers of licenses. Now, Daniel Mitchell says, needless to say, whatever's happening in the uh, marijuana industry happens whenever and wherever politicians have power. This is again from the political report. All government contracting and licensing is subject to these kinds of forces. That's Douglas Berman, a law professor at Ohio State University who authors a blog on marijuana policy. There's a lot of deal-making between businesses and localities that creates the environment of everyone working their way towards getting a piece of the action. Whether it's a city or county official that needs to be appeased or local control is just another opportunity for another set of hands to be outstretched. Now, the report concludes by noting that corruption can be avoided very simply... Just make sure politicians and other people in government have no power or authority. Again, from the political report, states that have largely avoided corruption controversies either do not have license caps like Colorado or Oklahoma or dole out a limited number of licenses through a lottery rather than scoring the applicants by merit like Arizona. Many entrepreneurs, particularly those who lost out on license applications, believe the government shouldn't be in the business of picking winners and losers and just should let the free market do its job. Now, to this, Daniel J. Mitchell says, amen. He says, I'll conclude by noting that politicians are doing the right thing in the worst way. He says, I want to end the war on drugs because it is a costly failure. It's not that I, th- that I think drug use is a good idea, but I recognize the social harm of prohibition is greater than the social harm of legalization. I'm sorry, I believe a police chief or two may have just clutched their chest somewhere out there going, I can't believe you just said that. Daniel J. Mitchell says, as a libertarian, I believe police or rather, I believe people, people should be free to make their own decisions consistent with the libertarian non-aggression principle, of course, even if I happen to disapprove. Sadly, politicians are not legalizing pot for libertarian reasons. Instead, they see it as a way of having a new product to tax, and they're botching that. And as illustrated by today's story, they see it as a way of lining their own pockets. He says, I'm tempted almost to say we'd be better off if marijuana was criminalized so it could be sold on the black market instead. But the real moral of the story is that government power is a recipe for corruption. I know that's that's pushing up on some people's limits of what they're willing to consider. But I think he's got a good point. And I think it's definitely one that uh, that bears looking at. I was kind of surprised. I mean, I, I lived a couple of years of my life in Oklahoma. And look, Oklahoma, for, for whatever you may think of it, is not necessarily what I would call a super progressive state. They were some of the most conservative people I've ever been around in my life. 
And I mean, it uh, it surprised me when I learned that, uh, you know, the nickname now is Toklahoma because Oklahoma has uh, has legalized dispensaries and they don't cap, you know, the they, they don't make it extraordinarily expensive. In my home state of Utah, I can't remember what the, the exact number is, but I'm thinking it's somewhere north of $100,000 to get a license to have a dispensary. And even then, it's only a very, very limited number, so they have to be chosen. And, and surprise, surprise, those dispensaries seem to have connections to people who are politically collected, connected, rather, legislators and others who, you know, are kind of in the inner workings there. Not surprising. In Oklahoma, you know, you have to come up with, I can't remember what it is. It's, it's a ridiculously low figure, like 2500 bucks, And you can have a dispensary, which means they are popping up all over the place. Now, that doesn't mean that, boy, Oklahoma is just, you know, going off the rails and everybody's getting stuck with pot needles everywhere they step. But it's interesting that a state that is uh, among the reddest of the red states could actually see a boom and they are seeing a tremendous boom in terms of people wanting to start businesses and by the way not all of them are going to succeed some of them won't be well run some of them are going to fail but uh, but the competition is is pretty significant so there's incentive for them to do a good job to take care of their customers i would much rather see that sort of circumstance than one in which they were, you know, trying to gear up and get the police more armored vehicles and, you know, more drug-sniffing dogs and be out there trying to kick down doors to prevent people from either using or growing a plant. I think I agree with Dan Mitchell. It's the, the social harm of prohibition actually outweighs the social harm of legalization. And frankly, I like decriminalization better. Just the idea that uh, it's, it's a plant. It shouldn't be government's business, whether you grow it or not. And for most of our nation's history, actually for the biggest part of our nation's history, that was the case. That didn't change until about 1914. I'm going to shift gears here. I want to talk about the uh, $2.3 trillion spending bill. I've, I've seen a lot of people talking about this over the last few days. And, and look, I think that the anger that is associated with this is probably well-placed. There's an article from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is by Fiona Hannigan and Peter C. Earle. An incomprehensive list of spending bill nonsense. This is really good. And by the way, you know, when you're talking about a 5,593 page bill, you better believe there is a lot of stuff in there. And only 900 billion of it is actually for COVID relief. It's one of those omnibus bills that uh, that covers all kinds of different spending projects. And the crazy thing about it is for that uh, $600 or whatever that uh, that Congress is throwing to Americans, here, we want to help you in your time of need. They're throwing literally billions at a lot more questionable things. Now, frankly, I don't think they should be doing the stimulus stuff in the first place. And I don't mean to suggest that, therefore, you should just suffer. I'm just saying that... Uh, any money that they're giving you has to be taken from someone else or borrowed with the promise to pay it back by someone else. The government doesn't make its own money. It just writes a check that you're expected to pay back with interest at some future point. And if not you, then your kids or maybe your children's children. So when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the incomprehensive list of spending bill nonsense. If nothing else... You'll appreciate that your anger has probably not been misplaced. 
We'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I don't spend as much time on social media as a lot of people. I really try to limit my time. In fact, when I when I get my weekly screen report from my iPhone and it says your time was down this week by this much, I'm I actually kind of rejoice. Hey, I was down 29% this week. Makes me wonder what I was doing right. But occasionally as I'm flipping through various forms of social media, I find something that is just an absolute gem. And a thank you to T.K. Coleman from the Foundation for Economic Education for sharing this one. Um, this, is, this is one of the coolest things I've seen all day. He says, here's a disappointing and liberating truth all in one. Your mission and message is not for everyone. Now, if you're one of those people who's like seriously pursuing mission... Or if you are trying to to speak truth and and get a message out there, I can tell you, I know firsthand, it's that that is a tough thing because you want to know, am I having impact? And I, I'm afraid most of the time we measure that impact in well, you know, how many people am I reaching? Am I seeing significant gains in my numbers? Am I getting good feedback? You know, uh, what's my bank account telling me? But not everybody is meant to hear your message. Not everyone is meant to be served by your mission. Now, that doesn't mean you, you know, phone it in then. Well, fine, I'll just, you know, do it a half halfway. No. Give it your best. Serve those who are supposed to hear your voice as best you can. Serve them with the maximum amount of love and, and dedication. And let the chips fall where they may. This really is one of those instances, and, I, and, and every program director I've ever had throughout my career would, would probably just balk at hearing me say this, but it's not about the numbers. Quality versus quantity. Anyway, kudos to TK for, uh, for another brilliant insight. This guy is full of them. All right. Got your blood pressure medication handy. Pop a couple of them. Let's go. Let's talk about the incomprehensive list of spending bill nonsense. This is a piece from Fiona Fiona Harrigan and Peter C. Earle from the American Institute for Economic Research. After months of waiting, they say we finally have it. Congress has passed its spending bill, which comes in at $2.3 trillion and contains its latest COVID-19 relief bill with a price tag of $900 billion. Now, if that sounds exorbitant, they say wait till you hear the page count, 5,593 pages. Congress had no energy for a snappy acronym like those earlier ones of CARES and HEROES Act, so though it had plenty of energy for or energy rather for plenty else. The bill titled, titled the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2021 was so full of pork that it literally had to be wheeled through the halls of Congress on a wagon. According to the Senate Historical Office, it is likely the longest bill ever passed by Congress. The previous record was a 1986 tax reform bill which was just half as long as Monday's spending bill at 20,000 I'm sorry 2847 pages released at 2 p.m. last Monday Congress largely voted for the legislation on pure faith to read the entire thing would have taken days though it was released just hours before Congress eventually passed it 
Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona, one of 53 members of the House of Representatives to vote no, lamented, no member can honestly say they know exactly what they voted for this evening. That is reason alone to vote no. And by bundling much-needed COVID-19 relief in with so many special interest problems, voting members of Congress effectively had their hands tied. Now, it goes into the COVID relief measures. I'm going to skip that for now. If you want to check out more, there's, the article is posted in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. But I want you to hear just a few of the programs and provisions in that spending bill from last week that had nothing to do with COVID-19 relief. You ready for this? Grab another blood pressure pill. You're going to need it. $10 million for gender programs and $15 million for democracy programs in Pakistan. That's your taxpayer dollars, my friend. Pakistan can afford to have a nuclear program, but hey, we need to be sending them tens of millions for gender programs and democracy programs. Whose hands do you think that money is going to end up in? I'm guessing it's uh, the politically connected, but that's just, you know, that's just a layman's guess. There were $4 billion for vaccination programs in other countries. A billion dollars for Amtrak, a reliable money loser, or actually more like a gift to railroad worker unions and rail equipment contractors. A billion dollars for two new Smithsonian museums, the National Museum of the American Latino and the American Women's History Museum. Boy, if we get into some gender-specific museums, there's going to be a ton of them. Better dig deep for that kind of tax money. A 64-page section devoted to horse racing integrity and safety, establishing guidelines for anti-doping, medication, and racetrack safety programs. The bill also contained the repeal of criminal punishments for permissionless use of Smokey the Bear's likeness. The decriminalization of the usage of the Swiss coat of arms. The repeal of criminal violations for transporting water hyacinths, a delightful and highly invasive flower from the Amazon rainforest. A section devoted to democracy in the Tibetan exile community, which outlines the Dalai Lama's preferred system of governance for the Tibetan people and delegates over $7 million to two pro-Tibet radio stations and sets out guidance for the Dalai Lama's reincarnation. $700 million to Sudan. $500 million for Jordanian defense spending. $453 million to Ukraine. 78.4, no, $74.8 million for the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative. $33 million for programs supporting democracy in Venezuela. It's in quotation marks, so (laughs) I have to question, what exactly is that going to accomplish? $1.4 billion for President Trump's border wall, funds for a resource study of the Springfield, Illinois race riot, which took place in 1908, a provision to make illegal streaming a felony, a call for the Food and Drug Administration to produce a seafood consumption guide entitled Advice About Eating Fish. Wow. Now, there's a lesson here. And the, and the lesson, according to Fiona Harrigan and Peter C. Earle, is this spending bill seemed to contain a gift for everyone except the American people. Many of the measures that were buried deep in the thousands of pages were congressional passion projects and the fulfillment of longtime quid pro quos that had no chance of passing if forced to stand on their own. Downtrodden Americans received nothing but breadcrumbs. An estimated 8 million people have fallen into poverty since June. Between March and September, over 160,000 small businesses closed, about 60% of them for good. And now, while congressional interests guide the spending agenda, 
Americans will continue to suffer at the hands of the government they fund. The swamp, they conclude, as we are learning, is far from drained. How frustrating. So what do you do? Okay, this brings me to the the most controversial thing I'm going to touch on today, and I'm only going to touch on it. It's an article from uh, from Brandon Smith. This was published on December 17th at altmarket.us. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and, and share the headline with you. The new confederacy? Yes, it's time for conservatives to unite against the globalist reset. Now, people are are feeling like, well, we're caught on the horns of a dilemma. What do we do? What do we do? If we roll over and do nothing, says Brandon Smith, then the extreme left and their corporate and political partners take control of the country and we will never see freedom again as they assert their social justice mandates along with their lockdown mandates. I think the writing's pretty clear on the wall. That is a possibility. If we fight back using the same tactics as the leftists or support martial law, then we ultimately erase the civil liberties protected within the Bill of Rights. And he warns those rights will never return. Do not believe the promises for a second. And we become the history's biggest hypocrites and a cautionary tale of the dangers of nationalism told to children generations from now, much like the Nazis. But he says there is another option. And it's not diplomacy. He says the establishment likes to make people think there are ever only just two choices during any crisis. And both choices involve giving up more freedom or giving government more power. What they don't want you to consider is the third option. The people taking power for themselves and removing power from those who would abuse it. Why should we rely on a middleman to exact such measures? Why are we always being told we need to wait for a president or a government to do a job we can do ourselves? His point being, the liberty movement doesn't revolve around Trump or the election, and it should never rely on martial law as a means to secure our safety. We can do this on our own without asking permission or waiting to be led by a mascot. Now, he's talking about uh, he's talking about testing the waters of secession, which you should understand as peacefully going our own way, withdrawing consent and governing ourselves. Oh, do you believe there would be opposition? Yeah, I would think so. Look at the drama over Brexit. We would certainly see that. But the point is, we are not caught on the horns of a dilemma. Because we can withdraw our consent if we decide that is the best course. It's some good reading. Check it out. It's in the show notes. I think you'll find it worth your time. This is The Brian Hyde Show.